Welcome to Faith Stories, everyone. So glad to see you here this morning. Um, we are going to go ahead and get started. I'm sure we'll have a few more stragglers coming in, and they're all going to get to sit in the front row, so lucky them. Um, so this morning, um, we are going to be hearing from Ann Forbes. And just a little bit about Ann. Um, she has been at Faith Church since 1985. And during her time here, <laughs> it's very impressive. <laughs> um, she has volunteered um, teaching Sunday school. She leads the Cubbies program at Awana. She's worked with the Good News Club at Nora Elementary. And from 2001 to 2017, she was the director of the children's ministry here. Um, but now that she's retired from that, she is um, volunteering at Life Center, which is something she's wanted to do for a while. Um, she's the mom of three kids, and she's married to Dave Forbes, who also has three kids. So before she gets started, I am going to say a quick word of prayer for her, and then we'll hear from Anne. So, Heavenly Father, um, I just want to thank you for this morning to come together and just hear about how you've been at work in Anne's life. Father, I thank you for um, her willingness to share her story. Lord, and I, I just pray that you would help us to be open to hearing um, how you've been at work in her life, and um, I just pray that you would uh, be here this morning, uh, give Anne the right words to say, and, and open our minds and our ears. Lord, we worship you, we thank you for this church, and I pray these things in your name. Amen. Welcome, Anne. Thank you. Well, you wouldn't think that someone who had experienced several miracles would be shy about sharing them, but... Actually, such is the case with me. Our family was in a very desperate situation for many years, and God knew that we needed his help. But the reason for our hardship is difficult to understand, and so I've been reluctant to share it publicly. But God deserves the credit for what happened, and so I want to share it with you now. As you know, when Jesus was on earth, he performed many miracles, right? Mm -hmm. Consider the situations where he performed miracles. The blind man was a beggar because he was blind. The woman who had been sick with a hemorrhage for so many years, she had spent everything on her condition, and it was to no avail. And the leper had a terminal disease, and he was actually an outcast from his own community, even from his own family. So these people desperately needed the compassionate hand of Jesus to supernaturally intervene. They didn't really want to be in a position to need a miracle, and neither did I. But fortunately, God knew the need and helped our family in a whole series of supernatural ways. At our house, there was plenty of room for miracles, and God came through for us. You see, my first husband, Steve Weaver, became bipolar about two years after we were married. We had known each other at Indiana University in the 70s, and we were both involved in Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as CREW. And in fact, Steve was the student leader who would emcee the large outreach meetings with a great sense of humor and a ready smile. After graduation, we had both chosen to go on full-time staff with CREW individually. And he had gone on the campus staff at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And I had gone into the high school ministry uh, and staff in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> Greetings to the Satolas. <laughs> Glad you're here. Um, so a couple of years later, we began dating in Fort Collins, Colorado, where we were both assigned for the summer. We fell in love, and we got married the next summer in 1975. Now, I enjoyed my transfer to the campus ministry, and we had a couple of great years of ministry together to college students. But in the fall of 1977, Steve became unmotivated about the ministry, and then listless, and then lethargic. I couldn't seem to say anything that would bring him out of a funk. And all I knew to do was to keep 
the ministry going as best as I could. We had our first child, Paul, in 1978. And after another year of half-hearted ministry, Steve was asked to take a position in San Bernardino, California at the Crusade headquarters. This seemed to lift his spirits considerably, and he really went into action to make it happen. But when we arrived in San Bernardino, September of 1979, in 115 degree heat, and realized that the home that Steve had purchased did not have air conditioning, <laughs> yeah, he spiraled down into a real depression. Uh, I was pregnant with our second son, Carl, and I did the best I could to form my own community from friends from our church and ministry. But at home, Steve had very little to say about anything and kept saying he didn't feel well enough to go to work. Carl arrived in March, and my main focus was on my two little boys. That June of 1980, when Carl was three months old, Steve made his first attempt at suicide. He disappeared the day that we were to leave for Fort Collins, Colorado for our summer assignment. Suddenly I realized how severe the situation really was. I won't go into a lot of detail, but when his supervisor with crew learned about the situation, Steve was given a leave of absence for the summer, and we were put in contact with a Christian psychologist who met with either one or both of us once a week. This was a godsend for me because by this time, I really needed help to understand what was happening to Steve. So a few months later, Steve began an upward mood swing. He became happy, gregarious, very talkative, and extremely energetic. This was fun. And I thought maybe it was the result of the counseling and many prayers. But when his mood continued to climb, he became very critical. He felt he was being held back at work and thought that he should run for Congress. He began sleeping less and less and talking more and more. There were nights when he didn't sleep at all. In spite of being a very frugal person all his life, he began spending money that we didn't have and buying things that we had no, no business purchasing. I was totally bewildered. The psychologist suggested that he might be bipolar and referred us to a psychiatrist so that he could get on, a, on some prescription medication. And so began our journey on this road of mental illness. It's important for you to understand that bipolar is a disease just as much as arthritis is a disease or diabetes. It's a disease that affects people's brains rather than their joints or their pancreas, but it is still a disease. I don't wanna go into a lot of detail about Steve's behavior because it's so easily misunderstood but his mood swings became more and more severe until he tried to buy me a house for my birthday, which was like 10 times what we could afford. I managed to talk him down to agree to a small, lovely home that I hoped that we would be able to afford, this time with air conditioning. <laughs> Meanwhile, the bills were stacking up and a huge crisis was brewing. He was no longer able to fulfill his responsibilities at Crew, and we left the staff of, of Crusade, which was um, a great sadness for me. He decided he wanted to buy into a partnership, and it was a janitorial company. We, we borrowed a couple of thousand dollars from some friends, which we never should have done, in order to buy 20% of this business. The plan was for him to sell the service to businesses during the day and then train college students to do the cleaning at night. This sounds very doable to a person on a continual high, but it was unsustainable. Day after day, he would come home at dinner time, having sold no services to any business. And this went on for months. Meanwhile, 
I took a job with a man who was running for U.S. Congress named John Paul Stark. Um, I don't think you need to be watching that, so I'm going to turn it to this one. Okay. Um, meanwhile, I took a job with a man who was running for U.S. Congress named John Paul Stark. I had become good friends with his wife, Donna, through a ministry called Crisis Pregnancy Center. I told Donna that I was in the job market, and she linked me up with John. So I managed Jan John's campaign headquarters, recruiting and training volunteers to make calls. I knew it was temporary, though, so I applied for teaching positions in the area. I couldn't apply to California public schools because I didn't have a license in the state, but I applied for as many of the private and Christian schools that I could. Of course, I was in constant prayer for Steve and for our situation, which felt completely out of control. One day in June of 1982, I prayed, Lord, I don't know what to do. I'll do anything. I'll be a truck driver if you want me to. I just need to know. And right then and there, <clears throat> this is really special. <laughs> right then and there, <clears throat> the Lord spoke to me as clearly as if you were standing right next to me. He said, I want you to teach. And I said, I mean, I was very startled, you know, so I'm sure my <laughs> eyes got really big and I looked around. Um, and I said, well, I've, you know, I've applied for all the jobs I know of and there's nothing available. And he said a second time, I want you to teach. So I said, what about a car? <laughs> and he said, I'll provide a car. And I said, how? <laughs> he didn't answer that one. <laughs> but, you know, I had heard very clearly that he wanted me to teach, and that became very important. I wish I had time to tell you the story in more detail, because this whole thing involved a lot of miracles, really, but I, was act I actually had to turn down a job offer to begin teaching in September because I had promised John Paul Stark that I would stay with him until the election. And so can you imagine how I felt to turn down the teaching job that maybe God had meant for me to take? I had to go to my pastor and tell him the whole story and see what he thought. And he said, I believe that God will have something else. So. I, that was okay. I just stayed with John Paul Stark. And then one, one Sunday afternoon in September, I was collating campaign materials on a folding table at our house. Everybody else was taking naps. And the principal of Mountain View Christian School knocked on our door. <laughs> I had never met her before and um, asked if she could come in. And um, she asked me if I would consider teaching her fourth grade class beginning in December. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I tried to be very, <laughs> I mean, I'd never met the woman, but you know, inside I was just jumping up and down, yay God, you know, so it was his perfect timing. And so that's what happened. I taught fourth grade at Mountain View Christian School, and actually I enjoyed it very much. Um, a friend from our church, Lynn Lockwood, agreed to take care of both boys for the price of one. A very generous offer. But it was difficult to keep up because I had the boys to take care of in the evenings, plus lesson prep and grading papers. And Steve was very quiet, very much to himself. He was still trying to sell the janitorial service, and he was still not getting anywhere. I didn't make much money at the Christian school, and the bills were mounting. We not only had the debt from the business that Steve had purchased, but we had growing debt from the psychologist and the psychiatrist. 
So we had very little food to eat. I felt guilty about going to the grocery store when we had unpaid bills. So I told Lynn Lockwood, the woman that was taking care of the boys, a little bit about our situation, and I, I confided her uh, about Steve's condition. Some weeks, she wouldn't even let me pay her for taking care of my boys all week. One Friday afternoon, I was at Lynn's house picking up the boys, and Lynn was emptying her freezer, and she said she wanted to put all of it into my car. <laughs> she insisted that I take it. She had bought a new freezer, and she wanted to start out fresh. So she's, what could I say, you know? So with many tears, I thanked her, and we had all kinds of meat to eat for several weeks. That was another miracle. But by this time, we were unable to pay our mortgage. I didn't know what was going to happen. All I could do was keep on teaching. I knew that I was, that's what I was supposed to do, and trusting the Lord. In May, Steve made a, f so pray for me, everybody. <laughs> in May, <clears throat> Steve made a false deposit in our bank account. In other words, he wrote in the ledger that he had made a deposit, but it wasn't real. He had probably had a psychotic break, and that means that he lost touch with reality. At any rate, I didn't know that the deposit wasn't real, <clears throat> and I assumed that it was money from his business. So I wrote checks to pay bills, and then they bounced all over town. It was a nightmare. If you've ever bounced a check, you know how disconcerting it can be to not only realize that you haven't paid the bill, but now you also have these fees that have been added to it. And I couldn't figure out what had happened. And Steve couldn't tell me. I mean, it was as if he didn't know what I was talking about. So I called my mom and dad here in Indianapolis in a panic, and I asked for $500, which was quite a bit of money in 1983. I had never asked them for money before. But they were understandably perplexed, and they asked me questions that I couldn't answer. <clears throat> <clears throat> Nevertheless, they were very kind, and they sent the money right away. But the worst was yet to come. At the end of May, the school had the typical year-end program for the parents one night. I remember being very pleased with the kids that they had done a really good job. When I got home that night, Steve wasn't there. The black station wagon was gone, but his brown bag lunch was sitting on the couch. Had he been gone all day and not taken a lunch? Something told me that he would not be back that night. I called Mrs. Weber, the school principal, and told her what was happening and asked her to get a sub for me for the next day. It was a Thursday night. <clears throat> In the morning, no sign of Steve. Had he attempted suicide again? I decided to call his parents. <clears throat> they bought plane tickets to come out right away. Three of my closest friends came over to sit with me and pray with me and console me. Saturday dawned and still no sign of Steve. Steve's parents arrived and we tried to console each other. It had been very difficult for me to tell them what had been happening with Steve, but there was no reason to shield them from the truth now. We called the hospitals, of course, and the police, but nothing. On Sunday morning, <clears throat> I couldn't face going to church. I didn't want to face all the questions, and I didn't feel like being sociable. In our absence, the pastor announced that Steve was missing <clears throat> and prayed for him. <clears throat> Excuse me. At about 11 o'clock, I got a call from George Lockwood, Lynn's husband, who had been sitting in the worship service when the prayer was given. He was calling from a payphone at the church. Yes, remember, it was 1983. <laughs> there were still payphones everywhere. And George said that God had told him to go find Steve. So I knew right away, Steve's alive. So 
George drove his motorcycle into San Bernardino downtown, and he was crisscrossing through town trying to find our black station wagon. And he did. So he stood there for a few minutes, and then he could hear Steve's voice. He was yelling at himself inside of a cheap motel. Um, he was yelling at himself in an angry voice. So George walked around to the front of the motel, and he opened the, knocked on the door, and Steve opened it and looked at George without expression. George simply said, I've come to take you home. Steve got on the back of his motorcycle, and George brought him home. His parents were elated to see him, of course, and so were the boys, and I did my best to smile and welcome him home. I knew that God had worked a miracle to save his life. So one of the complications of bipolar disease is the natural resistance that people have to getting treatment. When you feel depressed and you know, you're just desperately wanting something to change, then you're open to medication. But when you're happy and energetic, even euphoric, why would you go to a doctor and agree to be medicated? It's very normal for it to take several years for a person to be accurately diagnosed with bipolar, as this shows, sometimes more than 10 years, just to be accurately diagnosed because it's so confusing. And then it often takes several more years of ups and downs to convince the patient that he really does need to stay on medication. And I believe that with God's help, Steve decided to remain on medication after this last crisis in 1983. So after that, he didn't have the extreme ups and downs. The medication kept him, kept him on a more stable, level path, praise the Lord. And I was very grateful. I felt like that was a miracle, too. After I had completed my teaching contract in June, Steve's parents helped us move back to Indiana to live with them in Gosport, which is down um, near Spencer, Indiana. I took a teaching job at the local middle school in Spencer while the boys were in a childcare situation that made me very unhappy. But there was nothing I could do about it, and so I just prayed like crazy. Steve's parents were very kind to us, and we all did the best we could. Steve tried a few jobs that didn't pan out, but eventually he landed a job with Best Lock here in, in town, which became Stanley Solutions, and now I believe is Dormacava or something, right here in Indy. He eventually became the trade show coordinator. After we moved to Indianapolis, I went to work in sales for my brother-in-law, who owned a manufacturing company. Things got easier, but financial hardship continued. We were so far in debt, it was very difficult to dig ourselves out. And in spite of the fact that Steve had to get a blood test every six months in order to continue his medication, he was mainly living in denial and did not want to talk about anything. It was a very lonely marriage. It was difficult for our kids, too, honestly. Their dad was physically present, but emotionally absent. It was a little like living with a shadow instead of a real person. It's not easy for kids to understand. I knew it would be best to not talk about it, but to make life seem as normal as possible. So my policy was to be honest when they asked questions about their dad, but not go into details. <clears throat> it was at night when everyone was asleep in bed that I would pray and often cry. And many times God would respond with a reassuring verse and his supernatural peace. I have a whole list of how God spoke to me through scripture. One of the sweetest passages that I know is at the end of Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
for I am gentle and humble in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is where I need to tell you what an important part Faith Church played in our lives. When we first came to Faith in 1985, it was a chance for Steve to make a fresh start. We made a lot of friends here. We had our third child, Diana, here. Oh, wait. (laughs) Yes, who is sitting in the back, by the way. And we were the recipients of incredible gifts and meals and kindnesses. Our kids were well-educated in our Sunday school. And while, we were, while they were teens, they were all discipled by godly people here at Faith Church. And it meant a great deal to me to feel like I could still have a ministry teaching Sunday school and leading evangelism explosion teams. And as most of you know, I eventually transitioned from a job in sales to being the children's director here until a couple of years ago. These are actually pictures out of old faith church directories. (laughs) Yeah. So in 2000, Before Steve even turned 50, he began showing signs of dementia. He doesn't look like it, does he? (laughs) At first, I couldn't tell if these new symptoms were new developments from the bipolar, but he lost his ability to reason, and many things were not making sense. He couldn't help Diana with sixth grade homework, and when I would tell him something, he just wouldn't understand. So began a whole new set of challenges, which, again, bewildered me. Steve's psychiatrist sent us to a neurologist who confirmed that he should be tested and treated for dementia. And actually, it turns out that was unrelated to his bipolar disorder, as far as they know. This brought another whole set of difficulties for our family. Steve lost his job at Best Lock and tried to work at several other companies, but was let go time and time again. The medical bills mounted, but Steve was uninsurable. I helped him apply for a disability from the government, but he was repeatedly denied. Fortunately, Faith Church helped me make our insurance payments a couple of times out of our benevolence fund. Eventually, when I joined the church staff, Steve was included under my insurance, which helped us a great deal. This short sort of shows you what happens when people are diagnosed with bipolar, just from a statistical standpoint. But I don't want to dwell on that. So by this time, the boys were in college. They didn't understand everything that was going on, but they were as emotionally supportive as they could be. And after realizing what a rough time Diana was having regarding her dad, her big brother Paul talked with her about it and told her that he would be her father. That was truly a bittersweet moment for me. So, God did not choose to miraculously heal Steve, but he did miraculously provide in many ways for our family, some big, some little. Each time something surprising would happen, it was as if God was saying to me, I know your situation, I know the challenges, I see your heart, and I'm going to take care of you. One of my favorite verses, verses became Isaiah 54, 5, which says, Your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. 
In many ways, I learned to look to God as my husband, my source of security and the provider for our family. So each miracle has a whole story behind it, but all I have time for today is just to mention a few. Um, so when I realized that we would be unable to stay in our home, and I put it up for sale, nobody wanted to buy it. <laughs> and so I, it looked like we were gonna have to refinance a new 30-year mortgage, which you all know what a terrible financial decision that is. And at the last minute, Dave Baldwin, Pastor Dave Baldwin called me into his office and told me that there was someone here in the church that wanted to pay off our mortgage. That person has remained anonymous. When Paul and Carl got married, we could not afford to host the traditional rehearsal dinner, and Barb Okamoto paid for it, both times. I don't know if anybody knows Barb here, but I got to know her early on at Faith Church. After several years of not going on vacation, Jim and Shirley Miller took us on their vacation to Breckenridge, Colorado. After a hailstorm damaged our roof in 2005 and the insurance money would only cover the cost of new materials, John Hooten and several other men from Faith Church came over and put a new roof on our house. Thank you, John. After my son Paul and his wife Michelle, oh, I should be showing you these. <laughs> After my son Paul and his wife Michelle had been in Istanbul, Turkey for a few years and we were unable to see them because we couldn't, we didn't have money to go over to, all the way to Turkey. Phil and Margaret Johnston helped us raise money in order to go on a visit. Oh, see, I'm way behind. <laughs> that's the roof. I think that's John on the roof. Okay, so that's when we went on a visit to Turkey. Um, Dave Musgrave came over repeatedly to help Steve with the lawnmower and snow removal and mechanical things like that. Jim Casasa came over many times to help with things like water lines and heating vents. Now, when Diana decided to go to college at Cedarville, I couldn't imagine how we would be able to help her. And one day, there was an envelope in my mailbox here at Faith Church, and in it was $5,000 in cash with a note on it that said, for Diana's college. There were a whole series of miracles that enabled her to graduate from Cedarville without any debt. Diana has no doubt that God is her provider. You may have noticed that behind each miracle was a person here at Faith. Is it any wonder that we love this place? And it really motivates me to do all I can to be a miracle for other people. Steve had dementia for more than 10 years. Things got more challenging as time went on. The neurologist eventually identified it as a rare frontotemporal dementia known as Pick's disease. The financial pressure we were under was greatly relieved when he was finally granted Social Security disability in 2009, which included Medicare. It also included a lump sum from two years retroactively. But keep in mind that he had been disabled for at least nine years uh, before that happened, but just by the dementia. This is our last photo of Steve. He died in June of 2010 after a very steep but quick decline. It doesn't sound like a happily ever after marriage, does it? 
But then we all know that those don't exist. But I can tell you honestly that I do not regret being married to Steve. I have come to believe that God's will for marriage is not to make us happy, but to make us more like him. He uses marriages like ours to glorify himself. And even though the pressure seemed more than I could bear at times, I came to know that he would come through for us with miracles that we never would have dreamed of on our own. Who else but God could turn this kind of hardship into blessing? Yes, we had plenty of room for miracles at our house. Steve and I will see each other again on the other side, and we will have plenty of time to discuss what happened. As long as he was here on earth, he was unable to discuss it, whether it was because he couldn't understand it or because he was felt compelled to deny it. But in heaven, he will be able to be honest with me, and we'll talk about it. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And how can I thank the Lord enough that we have three grown children, Paul, Carl, and Diana, and all of them know the Lord and want to serve him? All three of them spoke at Steve's funeral with kindness and compassion. They did not have the normal relationship that a child wants to have with his or her father, but they gained an eternal perspective instead. And have I been blessed in other ways? Well, you know my husband's <laughs> Dave. He has been a dear husband to me for five years now and a dear stepfather to Diana. I'd say that God has given me a second chance for a happy marriage. So I think that this is the time for... Thanks. So I think we've got some time for questions. Yes. Oh, I should have brought a picture of him, Carl and his family. Uh, he is a medical physicist in um, Atlanta, Georgia, and he has four daughters. Um, Emily will be nine on Friday, and Amber is five, and the twins are four. Three. <laughs> <laughs> better get that right. <laughs> yeah, they're doing very well. They, they attend a really dynamic uh, church. Delving into um, expectation versus reality, um, when you were going into teaching, was there like a field you wanted to go into and expected to go into and things were turned 180 and you went into something else? Were you kind of like, was there something you expected to do and reality was different? That's a good question. I got my degree in secondary education from IU. Okay. That's high school. Yeah. <laughs> when I did my student teaching, I found out I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just, uh, I would spend, you know, hours and hours grading papers and making lesson plans, and I thought, this is just unmanageable for me. But, um, like I said, when I taught the elementary um, school in California, I loved that. Yeah. And that's a little more manageable. Sure. Yeah. And I love teaching Sunday school here. Um. It's a different way to think about miracles, isn't it? I mean, you know, God never gave people miracles unless they were in pretty desperate situations. Is there anything else, and you've shared some, that you wish people knew or understood better when dealing with mental illness? I think the number one thing is to realize that it's a disease and to just, once you know that it's a mental illness, look past the behavior 
if you possibly can. Look past what they're saying even. Just look past it because it's not them. It's not the real person. Yeah. I appreciate that question because I think it's a really important one. And I, you know, I, I often said, you know, this is a disease and Steve cannot help it. You know, I have not thought about that, Brooke. I don't think I could. Um, you know, when, when Steve was the MC for crew meetings at IU, I always admired his ability to make everybody feel happy to be there. And um, But no, I don't think my kids are like their dad. Yeah, yeah. I just can't think of any particular trade. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I I did a lot of praying, and um, and I wanted to treat him with respect. I mean, that's what we all want to do for our husbands, right? And um, and you know, we didn't have much relationship, honestly. But the little bit of relationship that we had, I wanted to <coughs> show him respect. It was like it was all I could do. Yeah, but I mean. You brought up a good point. This, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to do this on my own. There's no way. So and God knew it. And, but I think because I was willing to let God be in charge, um, not only of, of how I treated him, but also, you know, other decisions that I was making, um, I think that helped God have room to do the miracles. So there's a sense in which when people are in a desperate situation, they need to make room, too, for God to do the miracle. No, not that I can remember. I mean, we, my policy with the kids was to only talk about it when they asked questions. And so that's pretty much what I did. The car. So you got the job, and then you said the project said, yes. So what, what was that? <laughs> well, Steve bought an old car from some people on Crusade staff for $200. So it wasn't much, but it got me to school, you know, for that whole year. From, you know, I only taught out there from that December to June. Yeah. 
gosh, that is so hard to say. Um, it was still the same Steve, um, but but it, there was a sense in which part of the life was just drawn out of him. Um, he just became, you know, you want the medication to stop the highs and lows, but it's not normal for somebody to be flat all the time, and um, which is how he was. So he was he was the same Steve, but but very passive, very flat. You know, part of part of the story is that you know he was he was accurately diagnosed in California by that psychiatrist, and he was put on the medication. And then he would, when he started feeling good, he would get off, and that did happen several times. And so, the whole thing, that crisis that happened in May of 1983, when he had a suicide attempt. Um, you know, that was sort of like the end of that. He realized that he wasn't going to live a normal life, and his best hope was to stay on the medication. Thank goodness. I mean, I'm not sure I would be here today if he had not made that decision. Oh, yeah. You know, one of the things about being close to God and trusting him is being honest and real with him. And when the nights when I was really angry, I would wait for everybody to go to bed, and I would take long walks in the dark because I could, I could say whatever I needed to, and nobody heard me except the Lord. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I... Um, I don't think this. I don't think it works if you aren't if you aren't honest with God. And um, and it did seem unfair a lot of the time. So, yeah. so this is a big question, but I mean, you are just the opposite of bitter. I mean, you really are. <laughs> I mean, and I've met, I mean, so many people in my extended family that are bitter about situations involving mental illness and. And so I wonder, I mean, I, obviously prayer and God, but sometimes that's not enough <coughs> in your head. So, I mean, was there, were there people that came into your life? I think that, you know, that um, verse in Hebrews that says, don't let the root of bitterness, what is it, get hold of your life. And the, the key is to forgive. And so... Part of this process was forgiving Steve. I had to forgive Steve a lot. And, um, and I think that, you know, because the Lord gave me such special friends, that helped. And um, I could process things. I, had, I have all three of my sisters that knew what was going on. And then I had three other friends that didn't go to faith church that I could process things with. I didn't feel like I wanted to process things with people at faith because I wanted this to be a, a safe place for Steve to be, him, to be as much himself as possible. So um, I, could, I could vent outside faith church. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, you mentioned a bunch of miracles that happened as a result of people of faith church being generous with their time or money or resources. Um, but to some extent, to find out about that, you had to be vulnerable, maybe in your community, and share what was going on. Was it difficult to be vulnerable to talk about some of those needs? And what was that experience like? Right. You know, honestly, 
Well, each, there's a story behind every miracle. And um, my kids have encouraged me to write it down. Um, there, were, there were people that found out about things if they asked me. And um, so I'm not sure how to answer that. Um, it was never like Margaret Johnston found out about it because one Saturday I was over in 248 and I was, I was setting the table to do um, Passover with the kids, you know, the next day. And um, I was crying. She walked into the room. So she found out, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there, it was all, God orchestrated it. I just have to say, God orchestrated each miracle. And that's part of what makes it special. Yes, yes, that is right. And when this first started in California, I was very resistant to accepting help. And um, you know, like you said, it's humbling. It's very humbling. Sure. 